this is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today we're tackling a really important topic that is timely considering that October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And we want to look at the issue of domestic violence from a lens that doesn't often get talked about. And that is the component of financial abuse and the critical importance of really all of us having what has been deemed a fuck off fund. Now, I know we hear a lot about domestic violence in the media, but I don't feel like we hear that much about financial abuse. So what exactly is financial abuse? Exactly. It's underrepresented despite the fact that Research indicates that financial abuse is experienced in 98% of abusive relationships. And surveys of survivors reflect that concerns over their ability to provide financially for themselves or their children is a huge barrier to leaving an abusive relationship. So financial abuse is really a common tactic used by abusers to gain power and control in a relationship. This can come in many different forms, whether they're subtle or overt, things like limiting a partner's access to assets or concealing information and accessibility regarding the family finances. Financial abuse almost always appears in conjunction with other forms of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, manipulation, and intimidation. And honestly, for me personally, when I was in a really abusive relationship in my early 20s, Just the fact that I was pressured into repeatedly signing leases for apartments that I could not afford was a sort of subtle form of financial abuse that was part of the control mechanism that was very prevalent. And when I did finally leave that relationship, um, my former partner made it impossible for me to sublet out my half of our two-bedroom apartment and basically left me semi-homeless for close to six months um, crashing on couches and thanks to the very goodwill of some people who helped me rescue myself during that time in my life and left me with six grand in credit card debt. Dang. Well, I mean, it really, it really goes to show that it's about control. It's a way of using finances and limiting your abilities and your freedoms through money. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit more about what financial abuse can look like. According to the National Network to End Domestic Violence, You or someone that you know might be in a relationship that has some aspects of financial abuse if it looks like this. They control how all your family's money is spent and lashes out with verbal and or physical aggression when questioned. Uh, They deny you access to joint accounts or has accounts titled in their name only. They sabotage your work and employment opportunities by stalking or harassing you. This is stuff like making it so that you can't hold down a job or really even get a stable situation for yourself by, you know, just not letting you work. And even shaming you for daring to work and, you know, questioning your motives for any kind of financial independence. And this was so perfectly illustrated in the show Big Little Lies, which is one of the most riveting sort of depictions of domestic violence and intimate partner abuse uh, and how Nicole Kidman's character was shamed out of practicing law because it was sort of questioned, why would you need money of your own? And yeah, you can really see how the hallmark of this kind of abuse is making it so you can't just be a stable, independent person on your own. You can't spend money the way that you want. You can't earn money the way that you want. Someone else is really in control of how money is being 
brought into your life and spent. And just making it harder for you to be financially free, just constraining your own financial situation is a form of control over someone else. And it is a form of abuse. Another hallmark of financial abuse that I found kind of scary and really, really telling is that your partner opens up credit card accounts in your name without your permission or knowledge. And I mean, the idea of going to run a credit check when you buy a car or get an apartment and finding out that you have all of these accounts in your name that you had no idea about, that is terrifying. It sounds like straight up fraud. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's like a step beyond abuse and it can stick with you and ruin your credit for your lifetime. Now, what was shocking is a new study that came out in June from SentSci, the online financial wellness community, found that millennials in particular and millennial women in particular report higher levels of financial abuse in their relationships. Almost two-thirds of millennials surveyed reported that a romantic partner used money to manipulate or gain power and control in their relationship. And 69% of women surveyed reported experiencing behavior from their partners that would constitute as financial abuse. And when you compare that to facts from the Purple Purse Foundation, a nonprofit advocacy group that provides resources for victims of domestic violence, they say that only 8% of the general population reports being victims of financial abuse. 8% of the general population, 60% of millennials, and almost 70% of millennial women. I almost wonder if it's one of those things where the symptoms are less visible, where you don't know what someone else's finances look like. So, you know, it's easier to maybe tell when someone is being abused in another kind of way. But your finances, we've sort of been taught to not talk about them and to sort of be very hush-hush. And if someone is experiencing financial abuse, it might not always be so obvious. I'm so glad you said that, Bridget, because the Sensei survey from this year... The numbers reporting financial abuse actually doubled than the year prior because the year prior, they didn't ask them about symptoms of financial abuse. Like, has your partner ever used money to coerce you into making decisions you didn't want to make? Or has your partner ever taken out a credit card in your name without your permission or consent? Whereas the year prior, they just asked, is financial abuse prevalent or present, rather, in your relationship? So... When we break down the symptoms of financial abuse, reporting goes up. So another component of this that makes it even more complicated is this idea of financial infidelity, which I have to admit I had never heard of. Financial infidelity occurs when one partner in a couple with combined finances lies to another about money, such as hiding debt in a secret account. Right. So I think one of the big challenges in relationships is, and this is something I have not figured out with Brad the Boo, When do you and to what extent do you combine finances? Which I feel like we have to have a financial like expert on to help us untangle that one. But this idea of coming into a relationship, you kind of need to know what resources and what debts people are bringing to the table. And financial infidelity is this idea that you're secretly spending or secretly saving and that you're not fully transparent with one another. But I think it's more about the spending. I don't know that I would necessarily feel the need to tell a romantic partner that I'm Secretly Saving. hoarding money. Like, yeah. that's my, I mean, and I think just even thinking about this, another way that it's so complicated is that we are taught to not talk about our finances. And so I could see someone not being upfront about the debt they've accrued because they're ashamed of it. Exactly. And not sharing it with their partner. Exactly. In fact, 60% of millennials said that a romantic partner had either lied about money or hid money or debt from them. And when we actually talk about a f off fund, 
We're talking about secret money. <laughs> We're talking about all women, like, to avoid being financially dependent or finding yourself in an abusive relationship. The whole concept of a fuck-off fund is saving your own money to be your own savior if and when you need it. So let's break down what a fuck-off fund really is. The term fuck-off fund was coined by author Paulette Perhatch, who wrote this incredibly real, scary story for The Billfold that describes two scenarios. In one scenario, you graduate college, you finally get a job, uh, you're in a relationship and you start spending money to keep up this appearance that you want people to believe, which is, I'm a real woman with a real job. I've got money now. I've got a car now. I'm, you know, buying real furniture from Ikea now, as real as that can be. And despite the fact that you've got significant college loans that you're paying off, you really want to spend because it's the first time in your life you've got a steady income. And then she describes a situation that was almost too real to read because it, it made me feel extremely anxious, which includes, oh, that internship didn't really turn into the full-time job you thought it was going to. Oh, you can live with your boyfriend for a couple of months and he'll cover the rent for you. So when he says something nasty to you, you know, that starts to sound very controlling and wondering why you're hanging out with this colleague of yours or starting to, you know, sound like a paranoid, controlling, semi-abusive partner, you wave it off because you look past it because you're literally thinking, this is just a bad fight we're having. I can't afford rent on a new place all my own, much less a security deposit and to get out. And then it just spirals out of control to the point where your boss makes a pass at you, but you can't leave the job. Or your relationship becomes truly abusive and you can't afford to leave. Well, what I think it demonstrates is the way that these things can often be slippery slopes where first it's a nasty comment and you're thinking, oh, well, I gotta, I'm going to brush it off. Before you know it, it all kind of snowballs until you're really, really in a situation where you don't have a lot of control. Exactly. And it's so easy for it to happen. It can happen to anybody. She describes a second scenario in which you graduate from college, you're starting to make real money for the first time in your life, and instead you choose to continue living like a poor student. You choose the refurbished table that you found on this curb instead of the Ikea coffee table. You choose to keep the crappy car whose bumper is basically falling off. And when your boyfriend says something rude to you, you tell him, you do that again and I'm out of here and he believes you. Or when it becomes abusive or when your boss makes a pass at you, you flip him the bird, you walk out the door and you can afford to walk away from those situations. Well, again, that just shows how financial independence and financial freedom really can dictate how we choose to show up in our romantic relationships. You would think of them as being separate, that your finances and your romantic and your domestic are all kind of separate buckets, but they're all intermingled. And, you know, how you're doing financially can really determine whether you can walk out of that, you know, abusive relationship or whether you can flip off that boss who just made a pass at you. And it's a really scary realization of the need for a off fund in those very dire situations that you can't really see coming when held up against the reality that most Americans have less than $1,000 in savings. And a majority of Americans have reported not being able to cover a $400 unexpected expense when it comes up. And again, I mean, how many people out there are one, you know, slip and fall away from complete financial ruin? Exactly. How terrifying. Exactly. And when you couple that with domestic violence, 
it puts women and especially women of color in a very scary situation. And when you look at the numbers writ large in America, you really start to see that we do have a racial wealth gap. Basically, the racial wealth gap in this country looks like black and Latino families having a lot less than their white counterparts. But if you look at the numbers, right, I mean, these are gaps in wealth and assets that have been perpetuated historically that have not gone away. Despite the rising black elite in this country and new black wealth in this country, that pales in comparison to the numbers across the board. A typical black household, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, has only 6% of the wealth of the typical white household. Let that sink in. The typical Latino household has just 8%. In absolute terms, the median white household had 111,146 in wealth holdings in 2011, compared to 7,113 for the median black household and 8,348 for the median Latino household. And these figures all come from the U.S. Census Bureau. I mean, when you think about family wealth, too, that's sometimes not money in the bank. These could be things like property, home ownership, all of those things that are typical historical access to a middle class, stable lifestyle, which if you are in a dire situation and you need to f*** off from a bad job or a toxic relationship or an abusive situation, having even non-liquid assets that you can rely on puts you at an advantage, makes your livelihood more stable. And so when we talk about this with an intersectional lens, we have to acknowledge the impact that race has, not just gender, in really looking at who's at risk when it comes to financial abuse. Yeah. And I think it's it's tempting to look at these numbers and say like, oh, people of color just, you know, for whatever reason, they have less access to wealth. But actually, if you look back at our, our country's history of, of bad and racist policy, it's really policy choices that have really had a lasting impact on why people of color have less generational wealth than their white counterparts today. And things like the GI Bill allowing for white service members to afford college and not black service members. Things like white people having access to home ownership programs that people of color just did not have access to. You may think these are small things, but they've had lasting and reverberating consequences throughout history, including today. And I think when you apply that to financial abuse, what you really see is Latino women Black women having less control over their finances and their white counterparts. Exactly. And one bad relationship, one slip up with a credit situation or one moment of becoming victimized by an abuser can be the last straw to break the camel's back. Or yeah, one bad boyfriend taking out a credit card in your name without telling you can really be financial ruin. And I think when you look at it from that systemic lens, Bridget, we can acknowledge that having a f**k-off fund and zealously hoarding and saving money wherever and whenever you can in case you do need to escape a bad situation is good advice but it's not equally accessible to all people. So we have to acknowledge that it is imperfect, even as a solution to this problem. Anna Merlin of Jezebel really unpacks this in a very compelling way. She talks about Perhatch's advice in that original piece in the billfold, which I highly recommend everyone read, as financial self-defense. However, she also acknowledges the privilege involved in being able to make that kind of a move. She says, quote, Her scenario presumes you're gainfully employed, making enough to cover expenses with even a slim margin left over. And those are all pretty big ifs 
one and all, and out of reach for the 45 million Americans living below the poverty line and quietly drowning amid the failed experiment of late-stage capitalism. I think she nails it really highlighting that this isn't really something that everybody can do. When you look at the realities of some people who are in really tough situations, maybe they don't even have the opportunity to put away a little bit each month. So in a piece for Salon, Perhatch actually breaks down her experience with building up a off fund. Um, she talks about when she was 33, she was living in Seattle. She was going through a really financially tough time and ended up having to move back in with her mother. It was listening to Dave Ramsey's podcast and through some creative uses of Excel spreadsheets that she really sort of got her off fund on track. Another sort of interesting aspect of how she developed this was accountability. She would blog about this occasionally and told just a handful of people that she was going on this financial journey to save money. And I think it was just one reader, like the mom of a friend, who would read the blog occasionally. But even that one reader was enough for her to have that accountability in terms of the financial choices that she was making. Yeah. And I think it just highlights that even though having a off on is imperative, and I would encourage everyone listening to do everything they can to put whatever money away that you can for the potential emergency that might come up. Even moving home with your mom at 33 is not an option for everyone. Yeah, not everybody has that support system. Not everybody has a parent they can live with or a relative. Not everybody has someone who's going to read their blog every week to make sure they're keeping their financial goals. Well, when we come back from this quick break, we're going to talk to a woman who did just that and who found her way out of not only an abusive relationship, but out of financial instability through her own method of accountability and how she's made it possible for others to do the same. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And we're back. And now to talk through some of the ways that women can protect themselves from financial abuse and also be the boss of your own bank account, really, is our good friend and financial educator, the creator behind MyFabFinance, Tanya Rapley, is here in studio with us. Welcome, Tanya. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. I know. We're so glad to have you here. So stoked to have you here. We're crashing your pad, really. We're in L.A., so this is your these are your digs, yeah? It's newish digs. True. Like just moved here from New York after being in New York for nine years, so I still feel like I am acclimating myself and kind of reclaiming my peace after living mm. in New York for nine years. Are you an LA girl or a New York girl at heart? I am a Southern girl at heart. Oh, where I'm from North Carolina. Oh, what what part? Charlotte. Oh, my grandma lives in Charlotte. Shout out to Mecklenburg County. Yes, Mecklenburg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm from Charlotte. And it's funny how um, my first couple years in New York, I was like, I'm a New Yorker. And then after I got over New York, I was like, Actually, I'm definitely not a New Yorker. I'm a Southerner. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like a Southern New York hybrid in L.A. Oh, wow. I love it. Well, I love, I love it because we've got listeners all over the world who yeah. are going to be excited to hear your story. Yes, and I'm a citizen of the world. Yeah. I so wait, it. tell me more about those early years in New York for you because that's really when the inspiration for my fab finance came about. Is that yeah. right? Um, the early years in New York... 
I would say kind of started from the early, the years in Miami. So I went to college in Miami, Florida, and thank God I graduated because I had so much fun in college. I was going to say, who goes to class when you've got Miami Beach? You know, actually, you went to class on the beach. Oh, I boy. actually had classes because <laughs> um, I studied public administration. So I had classes at the police academy right there on Aww. Miami Beach. And so, of course, I made a bunch of financial mistakes and relationship <laughs> mistakes in Miami because you make mistakes in Miami. How did you not? <laughs> right. Exactly. And, but I live to tell the story. And so I ended up moving to New York and, um, all the mistakes that I had made while I was in college, I kind of just swept them under the rug. Like, new city, new me, renamed myself. I had a music blog. So with my last name being Rapley, everyone called me Rap. And so I um, just had this new life and alter ego. And during that time, I was ignoring my finances. Mm. I really was that person who looked like she had it all together. Um, I had this ongoing thing with my friends who are like really smart and really brilliant. And I'm sure you ladies can attest that when you're naturally intelligent or you're naturally brilliant, that other people are impressed by your mediocrity. When you're being mediocre, other people are impressed. So I was kind of just like playing mediocre in all areas of my life and not really rising to the occasion when it came to my finances and really pursuing my goals and my dreams. Can I ask what kinds of mistakes did you make, if you're willing to tell us? Because... I feel like talking candidly about money mistakes you make mm-hmm. is a good first step. I took out a lot of debt. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were really big on credit um, because my parents are both in the military and they were really big on credit. And so I had great credit when I moved to Miami. So that means I financed a new computer. I financed a new car. I financed my wardrobe for my first day of work. I financed my plane tickets home. I financed my spring break. I financed my hair. Like everything was being financed because Charged I had good it. credit. Yeah. <laughs> I, also, I love that it's things that, you know, as black women, it's things like, my hair is a big deal and I'll spend a lot of money on my hair, right? Yes. Like my outfit's a big deal. Like it's this idea of wanting to look like you have it all together and that being very important sort of culturally. Exactly. I think. Like a lot of people culturally, they, it's like, well, she doesn't look like she's broke. It's like what she is, you know? And so, um, those were some of the mistakes I made. And I was actually doing really well with paying back my debts until I got into an abusive relationship when I was in college. And that was my last year in college. Um, and, it was an emotionally, physically, financially abusive relationship. And so at, towards the middle and end of the relationship, I found myself being the only person who was working. And so as a result, I was the only person paying the bills and my other financial obligations and the bills that I had accrued prior to that relationship ended up going unmet because all the money that I had was going towards supporting the both of us. I mean, buying groceries, paying the rent for a two-bedroom apartment. I had my car payment and I just fell behind. I wasn't saving any money. Um, and it just got out of hand to where he knew I had good credit. So then he took advantage of that and started doing these scams on eBay with my account. Um, actually, it took me maybe, I think, seven years after our, after that relationship to pay off all the debt wow. to PayPal wow. so that I could use PayPal for MyFab Finance. Oh, my goodness. And so there were just a host of mistakes, and then I ended up leaving that relationship. But for me... Moving on meant not dealing. And so Mm. I just swept everything under the rug, moved to New York. And I didn't really address that until 2012. And that's when I realized, like, hey, Tanya, you want your own place eventually. Your credit sucks. This is like you weren't raised to be like this. Um, You have to get your financial life together or you're going to retire and eat cat food and work at the grocery store. Was there a moment for you? Was it the apartment or was there some crystallizing moment where you said, gee, I got to get this together and just stop? keeping this under the rug for you that made you act? There were a couple of moments, but there were two in particular. The first one was I had a roommate and 
and um, we both have fiery personalities. And so we were getting in an argument about the mail and I was upset because I was waiting for a check and she had lost the mail key and I needed to check to see if I had a check there because I was broke. And um, it got heated to where it almost became a fist fight. And so I went and called my sister, my little sister, to kind of just talk it through, thinking she's going to side with me, like, who she thinks she is, da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> and my sister was like, actually, you're too grown to have roommates anyway. And I was like... Real talk from baby sis, right? <laughs> here, like the little sis had her own place, and I was like, "Well, you don't live here. You live in DC." And she's like, "It's expensive here too. Mm, it is. Expensive. We can adjust to um, that." And that's when I was just like, "Wait, I do. Why do I have roommates?" And it was like, "Because your credit is so bad that you cannot afford to get your own place." And so that was a moment for me. And then, so I started to think about finance. I started thinking like, "Tanya, you really have to get it together." And then a few weeks later, I was working at the YWCA in Brooklyn, and it provides low-income housing for women across the city, as, along with programming for residents. And um, one of my residents. I was leaving work and she was begging for food and money at the subway station, like mm. outside of our job. And this was a woman who was a doctor in her, like before she fall, she fell on hard times. And I was like, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter what job you have. If you don't prepare financially for your future, this can be you, Tanya. So you need to stop playing around and mm. get it together because, you know, if you are fortunate to make it to your old age, you're going to need money and your decisions now are going to impact your level of comfort in your retirement. And so that was when I was just like, you know what? I'm done playing around. Let me get started on this. And MyFab Finance was started in January 2013. So tell us, what is MyFab Finance? What does it exist for? Who does it serve? And and really, what's the journey been like for you? Yeah, I created MyFed Finance to help millennial women own their power and take control of their finances. The mission of MyFed Finance is to help millennials break the cycle of living paycheck to paycheck so they can do more of what they love. And I'm really big on the what they love portion because I know people who are financially secure, but they're still miserable. Like yeah. They don't know what their passion is. They don't know what their purpose is. And so I really wanted to hon- throw that in there because I think so many people are like, become financially free. But for what? Right. Like, what does that mean? What does it allow me to do? And so that's why I created MyFab Finance. And um, I'm really big on accountability for MyFab Finance. So while a lot of people create a lot of freebies and everything, like for me, it's, I create freebies, but I also need you to meet me halfway. So I have monthly master classes. I have courses that I teach. I do a lot of speaking and so forth because I, I've done a lot of stuff for free. And I realize that people don't value stuff as much when it's given to them versus when they invest in. Right. right. Plus you're so, running a business. Yeah. Like, as a business owner, I can respect that. Like mm-hmm. you've got to prove yourself as valuable to people, but you're also running a business that is of value financially. Yeah. Effective 20. 15, I've been a full-time entrepreneur. Yeah. Oh, se- September 2015, actually, which I celebrated by going to a Beyonce concert. I love that. And you like to say, I've heard, you like to say that you were your first client. Is that right? I was. I learned by doing. And so I have a bachelor's in public administration and a master's in urban policy administration. Totally non-finance related. And so when I was getting started, I started because I was too broke, like teaching myself because I was too broke to pay somebody else. Like that was why I couldn't afford everybody else's consultation fees. So I was like, Tanya, you got to figure this out. You like researching, figure it out. And I was like, this is not that hard. And they're charging people for this. Let me just create a platform to teach other people how to do it. And that's what it started out as this blog to just 
share the methods that I was learning and what was working, what wasn't working for me, what was sabotaging my budget, etc. And then it started to grow because people were like, we need a little more. I don't know where to get started. And so my Gemini mind was like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> start. Um, but then it did force me to become more structured in how I delivered financial education. And that's mm-hmm. when I realized I wanted to go back and become a certified financial education instructor so that I could help people who needed help along their journey. Because you just saw, like, my finances are a mess. What do I do from here? Right. And really helping people tease out, well, this is where you should start based on where you want to go, mm. is is a skill set that you develop over a time of working with people and understanding how to help them reach their goals. And so, but I was the first client. I was my, my test baby. And it worked. And then my now husband became my client. And he's doing exceptionally well now. Um, and, uh, and then my sister became my client. And it. then once I tested it all out on them, I was like, I think I know what I'm doing. Let me help other people. Yeah. What I love so much about what you just said is this idea that I think that when we go into something like this, it can be tempting to think it's magic. There's some magic solution or it's super, super complicated and you need to be a genius to figure this out. But I just love that you're giving people this gift of saying, no, it's not magic. You don't have to be some, you know, genius, you know, to 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 really get this under control and navigate it. You really empower people to feel like this is something they can get a handle on. And I know for a lot of folks, myself included maybe, your finances can be scary and something that produces a lot of anxiety, something that you just want to hide from. But giving people that that power to say, no, you can get a handle on this. We can we can work together on this and get you through this and really make you successful. I think that's so amazing. Yeah, and I think that the financial industry can, to an extent, do people a disservice because I think as a society, we like to lead with people's accomplishments and their academic accomplishments and that... Um, discourages people who feel like they don't align with those level, that level of success. So they're like, oh, well, I didn't go to an Ivy League institution. This isn't for me. Or I didn't, you know, I, I didn't even go to college. This isn't for me. Like my parents dropped out of college. I'm like first generation. And they think that that has to be their story without realizing that when it comes to finance and so forth, it's all about your discipline and anyone and I don't want to sound like that, you know, if you just pull your, your bootstraps up, anyone can have a chance because I do recommend recognize that there's systematic oppression um, and forces at play that affect all of our lives. But also in the same sense, there's so many resources available to people online when it comes to financial education. Um, you don't have to be special. You just have to be committed. And let's hear more from Tanya after a quick break. And we're back. Let's get right back to Tanya. What I love about your impact in this space, though, is that there's not a lot of financial educators out there who take the approach and bring the values and the perspective that you brought to MyFab Finance, at least when you started it. I feel like that space is diversifying in a lot of ways. But one of my favorite things about what you've said is, you know, you don't have to give up the dream of living in a major metropolitan area to go be financially responsible. We're talking to millennials as though, like, we're being selfish for trying to chase our ambition, and that makes us financially irresponsible. What's your approach on that? And, like, what what do you think your unique viewpoint or perspectives or experiences have added to the financial education conversation? Absolutely. I'm happy you touched on that because when I got started and I was reading everybody's story, it was like, oh, I live in Nebraska or I live in Oklahoma or I live in Ohio. And it's like, 
That's just not where I live. I live in New York City, which is one of the most expensive places in the country, and I don't feel like I should be penalized um, for my desire to live in a place that I feel like rounds me out culturally and professionally. And there weren't a lot of financial educators who lived in larger metropolitan areas that lived where the cost of living was unbearable or unaffordable. And I wanted to create a lane for people who lived in those areas to understand, like, I know moving isn't an option for you because the best job options are likely here in these larger cities. And so this is how you become financially free, given that your rent is like 70% of your Mm -hmm. income. And, you know, happy hour, going to happy hour, like drinks out, like a drink is going to average you $12 a drink. Right. That's some people's reality. And I think that it's important when it comes to financial education for people to be able to um, see themselves and the different educators available. And that was my goal was di- to diversify the space. I have a big afro. I like clothes. I'm not a frugal mommy. Like, I I like shopping, and I'm not ashamed to say that, you know, and I'm not a minimalist. And I think that it's important for people who don't identify with that lifestyle to have someone who's like, I'm not that, but I'm still financially responsible, and you can be too. I I just like cheering what you're saying. I think that it's really about meeting folks where they're at. If you told somebody like me or somebody like you, if you don't live a very frugal lifestyle in a place with a very low cost of living, you don't you don't you're not serious about your finances. You're not serious about getting your life together. You're not serious about navigating your your financial situation. And that's not true. And I feel like it's not fair. It's not fair to ask people to sacrifice where they might feel culturally the most comfortable to move from that or move from family or move from where they feel like there's job opportunities, right? Like, I've worked in politics. If you told me to move from D.C., you're basically telling me to go back to school and get a new career. So that wouldn't make any sense for my life. And having a financial advisor who meets me where I'm at and understands where I'm coming from would be so important because otherwise I just wouldn't even feel comfortable talking about who I am and the actual choices that I make financially. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, exactly. Like someone who's from D.C., their other option is to move to the capital of whatever state that is and hope that you can get one of the coveted government jobs, you know? And it's, I think, it, like you said, it's unreasonable to ask someone, especially when they have other aspirations. My husband works in film. When we were looking at leaving New York City, we were like, okay, we can move to, you know, Atlanta It's more affordable than Los Angeles, but there still weren't as many opportunities for him. So sometimes you have to go where the opportunities are and then use your money responsibly when you get to that place instead of saying, I'm going to build my life around this farm in Indiana, which if someone wants to do that, that's totally fine and that's totally awesome. But I know given my experience, I mean, my parents were in the military. I just know it makes sense to feed who you are as a person. And I know I would be miserable in certain settings. And I'm very happy in Los Angeles Mm. around lots of people from various backgrounds. And that's the thing about financial responsibility is that you also want to practice self-care. And so you have money in your savings account, but you're miserable. And when you go outside or go to the grocery store, you just feel like, I just can't wait to leave. Or I just want to go home and order my food from Amazon. Which also too much discipline can actually backfire. Research suggests that if you cut every indulgence out of your life, you're likely to sort of splurge irresponsibly instead of feeding yourself some some gold stars or some brownie points or whatever you need. Like having a financial educator who respects your wishes. Yeah, it's important. Because even if you're someone who's struggling financially or not where you need to be, I'm a, this, this is probably an unpopular opinion. I believe that you still deserve a perk every now and then or a treat every Definitely. now and then. It's just not realistic to say you should eat nothing but rice right. and drink nothing but tap water until the day you die because you've made that, like, you Best. have not made sound financial choices. I think everybody needs, that's not how life works. Right. 
It sounds so sad, rice and tap water. <laughs> and I feel so bad because that's such a first world. Like, I'm like I, know. I mean, but some people wish they had rice. But right. no, you're, and, and I think that it is important to state that sometimes short-term sacrifices are necessary. Sure. And so, I mean, even with me and the husband sometimes, you know, I have to say, like, babe, we don't have to eat out tonight. Like, right. we, we, we may not have the complete meal that I thought about creating tonight for dinner, <laughs> but we have something that I can throw together and make some magic. Right. Let's go home and not eat out. And I think it's important to sometimes check yourself or depending on where your situation is, you might have to make short-term sacrifices. So you might have to move back to your hometown for a couple of months until you get back on your feet financially, but with the goal of moving back somewhere else once you get back on your feet financially. Oh, can I make a really strange sort of segue? Um, there's this great show called Insecure, and I don't know if you've seen the final the final season, but something that I found so beautiful from that show is how, and spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, Issa badly wants to travel, and she can't afford it. And so, you know, her car is crappy, her job is not so good. And at the end, her friend sets up this beautiful, like, in her apartment, yeah. faux trip, as if she's, you know, in Morocco or something like that. And I think... Understanding that we all have indulgences that we want, but maybe there's another way that you can sort of experience it. Maybe if, like, instead of going to Morocco, maybe you can have a staycation with your girlfriend and, you know, bring Morocco to her or something like right. that. Understanding Absolutely. that it's, you don't have to splurge to still feel like you're getting a little bit of a reward if you're on a budget. You have options. And I think that's the thing. We always default to the easiest thing. And sometimes it is easier to just go on that trip than to cre- recreate the experience. But, um, I mean, I know that in in Queens, New York, they have this night bazaar that you can go to or you can go to Flushing and they have kind of this taste of Flushing where you can have all these foods from different um, Asian countries. And so there's different things that you can do within your area that might give you the experience um, that you're craving but might not cost as much. Right. And I do want to say that I do watch Insecure. I actually live around the corner from the dunes in Inglewood. <gasps> oh my god! And so That's it. we um, need to make a trip right now. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because when we first were picking out our apartment, I was like the dunes. <laughs> I had to get a picture. And so it's become a landmark, actually. So when people come to our house, they're like, you live by the dunes. (laughs) Picture. Uh, We might need to follow you home after this recording. (laughs) I'll Um, take you to the dunes. I love it. So I want to bring this back to advice for the woman who's listening today and identifying with your story from that college relationship or who might identify as someone who's in a relationship that has a bit of financial abuse or financial infidelity involved or is just starting like you were not too long ago to face the music when it comes to your reality with money and it feels overwhelming it feels isolating it feels scary what is a woman like that to do like what is a person facing that situation to do what do you think is some of the first steps that she can take I think that um they're separate so you know abusive situation and picking up and Leaving that is different from my finances have been a mess because there's so much emotional work that goes into detaching yourself from that relationship that's abusive because um, financial abuse doesn't typically happen in a canister. It usually comes along with emotional abuse or physical abuse or both of them. And so um, I can only speak to my situation and it really did come down to choosing me and choosing joy. And realizing that my happiness was attached to this person who was unstable. And I could wake up ready to take on the world, but if they were having a bad day, I was going to have a bad day. And I didn't want to continue to give someone that power and ultimately possibly the power of eliminating my life that my parents worked so hard to help support and to help get me to the point of where I was at. 
And so um, understanding that you can always choose yourself mm. because I think when you're in an abusive relationship, part of it is manipulation and isolation. And so you feel alone and you feel like I can't leave this because I've turned my back on everything else and I have nothing if I leave this person. And you will always have something. You will always have the opportunity to rebuild. So that's my tip to someone who might be like, you know, this relationship isn't healthy and I want to leave it. Yeah. Um, there's happiness on the other side of abuse. I'm a living testament to it. And then as far as if your finances are a wreck, it is stillness. So um, one of my favorite books by Russell Simmons is Success Through Stillness, because I think that before you make any big decision, you have to get still. I think most people, especially I know myself, Gem- being a Gemini, like I'm like, I need to do something. I need to fix it. Let's start now. Instead of sitting down and saying, Tanya, where are you at? Where do you want to go? What can you do right now to get where you want to go? And I think that's my biggest suggestion to anyone who's like, I need to fix my finances. Sit down, ask yourself, where am I at? Where do I want to be? Okay, where? How? what do I have available to me to get to where I want to be? Even if it's, you just have internet access, start researching. Um, if you have a job, start putting money aside in savings and start creating a plan for paying off debt. So using where you are to get where you want and understand that you always have something available to you to get where you want to go. And then going to myfabfinance.com. <laughs> And visiting the exactly. your page. And uh, we have a financial checklist that is totally free. And it helps you identify where you might need to work on or what areas you need to work on. So it's like different things that you should have to have a solid financial foundation. If you don't have those items, these are items that you should be working on. Awesome. So where can folks find out more? I am uniformly branded on all social media platforms as MyFabFinance. So that's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I don't do Snapchat, um, but you can find me as MyFabFinance. And um, if you are interested in the woman behind MyFabFinance, I have my own personal um, account, Tanya, T-O-N-Y-A dot Rapley, R-A-P-L-E-Y, to find out what I'm up to because I'm not just the founder of MyFabFinance. I'm a hustlepreneur uh-huh. and I have so many other interests. Um, I'm gluten-free. Like I just found out I have a gluten allergy. So uh-huh. um, like just sharing the goodies that I'm finding. I'm from the South, so it's like figuring <laughs> out how to eat fried chicken and someone with a gluten-free allergy like a gluten allergy was gluten-free grits do those exist polenta Oh. oh, I badly want to pick your brain about healthier, gluten-free Southern food. Like, yeah. bis- what, what does gluten-free biscuits and gravy look we'll like? Have to come I haven't done that yet, but <laughs> we'll have to bring I, it back like slowly. Like, I feel like when I found out I had the gluten allergy, it was like, oh my god, I'm losing all of these options. My identity, like pasta. <laughs> yes. It was just like cakes, but it saved me from myself because now I go places. I'm like, nope, I can't eat that cupcake. And Southern girls, we like to eat. Mm. <laughs> yes. So, um, so yeah, I share all of those adventures, my travels, being an um, entrepreneurial wife, because that's a whole other thing. It's like making my husband feel like he's appreciated, despite that I have this other baby, which is my brand. Thinking about growing our family. So if you're interested in those things, Tanya.Rapley. Thank you so much for joining us in studio, Tanya. Thank you guys for having me. I hope you found that interview with Tanya as inspiring and motivational as I did. But really, truly, for those who are listening right now and are recognizing the signs and symptoms and red flags of financial abuse or financial infidelity in your own relationship or your own life, we want to make sure that especially during Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we make clear the many different resources available to those who are facing this kind of abuse. The first resource you have to check out is the National Network to End Domestic Violence. If you go to nnedv.org, you'll find a whole tab full of resources and ways that you can get help right away. 
And I think it's important to just highlight the National Domestic Violence Hotline. They can be reached at 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-7233. There are also free financial resources via the Purple Purse Foundation, which is powered by Allstate. If you go to purplepurse.com, you can find free financial tools and curriculum there that can help anybody Take steps now to take control over your financial freedom and your life. And I know that being in a toxic relationship can feel, as Tanya said, isolating, terrifying, and without recourse. And I just want to make clear to anybody who finds themselves in that situation right now that there are people who want to help. There are people out there who might not even know you who would gladly open their doors to you if they knew that you needed support. And that's more true today than it ever has been. This truly inspiring article from NPR that we'll make sure to include in the notes here made clear to me that unbelievably, up until the 1970s, there were no shelters for abused women in the United States. Today, there are more than 2,000 shelters and service programs. So even if you feel like you can't leave because you do not know where you or you and your children would go, you feel isolated and cut off and without an open door, that is not true. There are beds available to you. You are worthy of saving your own life and saving your own financial future. And even if that means having to reach out for the help and good graces from strangers, I can tell you that's exactly what happened to me. And when you are willing to put yourself first and say, without shame, I need help, there will be an answer to that call. Don't be afraid to choose yourself. Just like Tanya said, it's really about choosing joy and choosing yourself and and not being afraid to do that. And as usual... We're policy geeks here, so I just have to acknowledge that there needs to be more done on the federal and state governmental agency level to make resources like this available, because we shouldn't all have to rely on the privilege of having a off fund to escape what is a dire and desperate and sometimes deadly situation, which is domestic abuse. Absolutely. I think local and state and federal governments can and should be doing a lot, lot more. So, Sminty listeners, we want to hear from you. What resources did we miss that we should be sharing with our community online? Make those resources known. We hope that you'll continue this conversation with us online. Tell us what you thought about Tanya's great advice. Check out her website, myfabfinance.com. And let's keep this conversation going. Yeah, please get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast, and as always via email at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Mm-hmm.